Welcome back, Psychonauts, for another installment of Psychology. Let's talk about motivation and emotions. So, alright, starting off with motivation. This includes the various psychological and physiological factors that cause us to act a certain way at a certain time. So, uh, motivation can come from a whole different range of areas, and that's kind of what we're going to be exploring. So, it could be coming from our uh, environment and what in our environment motivates us to do things. Um, a lot of times basic motivations just lead us to survive and to be safe, uh, obtain food, water, shelter. Those are just all motivations. So um, if we boil it down to like kind of the most basic, we get this thing called like instinct theory. And instincts are natural or inherited tendencies of an organism to make a specific response to certain environmental stimuli without involving reasoning. They just do it. Um, and for the most part, they occur in almost the exact same way among all members of a certain species, like salmon swimming upriver to lay eggs. Um, and this has, for the most part, been debunked in humans, uh, but so this is mostly animals that we are talking about in this regard. All right, another theory for you, the drive reduction theory. So in order to understand this, let's talk about the word drive. So an internal condition that can change over time and orients an individual towards a specific goal or goals. So we have different drives and therefore different goals. So I am hungry, this drives me to eat. Curiosity drives me to find something out. Fatigue drives me to rest. So, um, you know, I kind of look at it as, um, all right, for this next part, think if you've ever played The Sims. Think of it like that. So the drive reduction theory. So based on our definition of drive here, when an organism is deprived of something it needs or wants, such as food or water, it becomes tense and agitated, and to relieve this tension or agitation, it engages in a specific behavior to reduce those needs. So like, like I said, talking about The Sims, we have our little Sims characters walking around if we've ever played the game. And these little, you know, almost like little uh, action figure toys or whatever, they have needs. And so in order to fulfill those needs or whatever, we have to, you know, go out and seek out these things or these drives, whatever it is that they need. So um, anyhow, biological needs drive an organism to act. And an organism strives to maintain this kind of equilibrium, which is called homeostasis and the textbook definition is the tendency of the body to return or to maintain a balanced state of existence um, and if the behavior reduces the drive that organ um, like a lot the organism will eventually just keep doing it and then they develop what we call a habit so all right now let's talk about another theory once again the incentive and cognitive theory all right so a couple of different um, areas uh, to talk about here uh, for incentive and motivation here. But let's start off with incentive. The object we seek or the result we are trying to achieve through our motivated behavior. So drives push us to reduce needs. Incentives pull us to obtain them. So the incentive is the pull, the drive is the push, I guess, if that helps a little bit. And when we talk about these kind of, um, you know, like what um, you know, kind of pulls us uh, or motivates us, we get into different types of motivation. And the first one I'm going to talk about here is extrinsic motivation. Engaging in activities to reduce biological needs or to obtain incentives 
or external rewards. A little example for you. If you play hours of a sport because your parents want you to excel at that sport, that is extrinsic or external motivation. So it's not you wanting to do it, it's your parents wanting you to do it. Now the opposite of this extrinsic is intrinsic motivation. Engage in activities because those activities are personally rewarding to you. So if you play hours of a sport because you just want to get good at it, that is internal motivation, intrinsic, internal. Now, if there is too much extrinsic motivation um, and there is not enough intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation goes up, there's too much of it and intrinsic declines or goes out, you get this thing called burnout. And a more technical term for that is the overjustification effect. So for instance, me personally, I love tennis. I play tons of tennis and during the summer, I do a lot of tennis. I do tennis seven days a week for like three months straight. And I even do an extra two months uh, before and after those three months of doing tennis pretty much every day after school. By the end of the summer, I don't really like tennis. Tennis kind of becomes a hate for me or a love-hate relationship. I still love tennis, but at that point, I've got to burn out over justification effect. There's just too much of it. All right. So um, now when we talk about these um, motivations and uh, social motives, um, we also start to talk about the need for achievement. And we're going to be talking about measuring the need for achievement here. So, but really quick, achievement motive. This is the concerns that desires to set challenging goals and to persist in trying to reach those goals despite obstacles, frustration, and setbacks. So how much you need to achieve is how, how much you are willing to persevere. Like, you know, it's like, all right, I need to get better. I need to set this and then I'm going to get that and this goal and then I'm going to keep going with it kind of thing. If you were interested in this, I would look up, or I'll explain this test a little bit more here, but the thematic apperception test. And this is designed to determine the degree to which people um, like write about themes relating to achievement, affiliation, and power. So you go to this, you know, there's a website for it and stuff. You can look into it. Um, but you write, you write for 10 minutes based on a picture they give you as a prompt. And then it tells you based on your responses, um, you know, granted it's a computer who is reading your writing, telling you how, you know, you feel about achievement and stuff like that. But it's kind of interesting if, if that's something that interests you. So therefore it'd be interesting to you. All right, moving on. Let's talk about David McClelland. I probably butchered that name. So this guy, kind of interesting. He says, you know, not all of us should really work towards being high achievers. We're just talking about achievement and motivation here. He said that high achievers are not really that interesting of people and are not really artistic um, either. Uh, you know, he says that they, these, these high achievers, these people that just want knowledge and stuff, they're less likely to value intimacy in relationships. Um, and people and studies have shown that high achievers prefer to be associated with experts who will help them to achieve rather than with friendly people kind of thing. I kind of think of like Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory, if you can kind of look at it like that, is he's all about achievement and not necessarily about the, the simple joys in life kind of thing. So 
when we're talking about this motivation and so forth, uh, moving on here, we need to talk about the fear of failure. Now, some people are motivated by the need to achieve, uh, but others may be motivated by the fear of failure. Fear is when someone stops taking guitar lessons because improvement seems too difficult, like, oh, I just will never get better, or decides not to try out for a sports team because huh, there's no way they're going to make it anyway. So people display fear of failure um, when they choose tasks that are offered that are either assured success or impossible tasks with no chance of success. So let me give you an example to kind of illustrate what I mean by that. So if you're given um, three puzzles, okay, puzzle one, extremely easy. You can solve it guaranteed. Puzzle two, more difficult, but it is solvable, but it's going to require some effort, some hard work. Puzzle three, extremely difficult, probably impossible. All right, people who have a strong need for achievement tend to choose puzzle two because it's difficult, it's challenging, but not impossible. People who have a fear of failure either choose one because they know they can succeed easily or they choose three because <laughs> no one can blame them because they failed because it's too hard anyhow. And this all kind of gets us into the idea of excuses because oh, it's too hard, I can't do it kind of thing. That's an excuse and it helps us to maintain a positive feeling about ourselves. So they um, kind of prevent us from taking responsibility for our actions because, oh, it's an excuse, it's not my fault because, yeah, kind of thing. So anyhow, uh, that was fear of failure. So now we have another one. This one's kind of interesting. Fear of success. All right, in the 60s, Matina Horner um, asked 89 men to write a story beginning with the line, after first-term finals, John finds himself at the top of his medical school class. Then she asked 90 women to do the same thing, but change the prompt from John to Anne. So, after first-term finals, Anne finds herself at the top of her medical school class. 90% of the men who were writing this little story uh, wrote a story of success for John. However, 65% of women predicted doom for Anne. So some people, mostly women in this story, now grand, this was a small sample size, um, are raised with the idea that being successful in all but a few careers is odd and unlikely. Thus, a woman who is success, uh, successful in medicine, law, and other traditionally male-dominated occupations must be a failure as a woman. Now, Think about this. This is taken from the 1960s, and women's rights has changed a lot over the years, and just our kind of our, our culture has changed a lot. So take some of this with a grain of salt, mind you. Um, I'm not sure that we would get that same information um, more modern day. And that being set up, more studies have been conducted uh, with these ideas. And... Um, so studies have shown that 45% of men expressed a fear of success and 49% of women expressed a fear of success. That just kind of tells me, this is me personally, my own little thoughts on this, that like 50% of people kind of fear success. That just seems like a regular kind of a cultural thing rather than a gender thing or whatever. So anyhow, um, so things to think about and you know, kind of building on this fear of success. Let's talk more about success. 
uh, with the expectancy value theory. So expectancy is your estimated likelihood of success. See, there's that little tie-in for success. And then value is simply what the goal is worth to you. So expectancy, how likely am I to succeed? Value, what's it worth to me kind of thing. And that brings us into competency. All right, so the competency theory, and we kind of talked about this earlier with that, you know, puzzles one, two, and three. Too easy of a task or too difficult of a task means we don't learn anything about how competent we are. So uh, sports, for instance, me personally, I don't really want to win a match or a game or whatever in mercy or lose the same way. Um, I, I would rather win or lose in overtime. At least that way I'm challenged and it could have gone either way kind of thing. Um, just a little example for you guys besides my little sports analogy. Um, if you are given uh, the ability to stand 1 to 15 feet away from a ring toss uh, while people watch, people who uh, so there's people gathered around while you're throwing these rings, people who have a high need for achievement are 10 times more likely to choose an intermediate intermediate sorry distance however people who are you know not or, or worried about this the opposite of this they are going to either pick really easy or really difficult kind of thing because no one can blame them if they can't get the last you know the, the far one but if they if they make that little easy one it's easy their likelihood the expectancy to finish it and make it is easy for them all right so as we talk about all these push and pull factors and so forth and needs, let's talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So there's three levels here. So the first level are fundamental needs, the needs we have to live. We as people have to satisfy these needs. Remember earlier I talked about uh, the Sims kind of thing. So um, this is food, shelter, companionship, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Our second one of Maslow, the second level, is psychological needs. The need to belong and to give and receive love. The need to acquire esteem through competency and achievement. And finally, the third level, the one that we don't get very often, is self-actualization needs. The need to fulfill one's unique potential. And like I said, Maslow did not think that many people reached this level. Um, that we... Um, and, and he also, he felt that we needed to go in order, and this was the, the third and highest one, so this one was at the top of the pyramid. Now, some people have argued over the years that Maslow identified some types of needs, but there are more, and they do not necessarily need to go in this order. So like, for instance, Christopher Columbus may have achieved self-actualization, but he certainly put his and others' needs for safety at risk to do so, which kind of goes away against, like, level one kind of thing. So... Um, his need for esteem dominated and kind of took out the other ones. So, um, all right. Now, we're going to transition here, and I realize we're a little low on time, but there's not too much left here, so I think we're going to power through, and maybe we'll be a little longer on this podcast, but we're going to finish up here with emotions. So he said that was kind of where this, this unit was going to be broken up into two areas. So let's talk about emotions. And this is going to fit in with our, you know, kind of uh, drive motivation stuff. So um, anyhow, moving forward, how we label these processes of emotion stuff depends on whether we are describing the source of our behavior or the feelings associated with our behaviors. Kind of think about that as we go through. 
when we want to emphasize the needs, desires, and mental calculations that lead to goal-directed behavior, we use the word drive or motivation. When we want to stress the feelings associated with these decisions and activities, we use the word emotion or affect. Um, so the two are very intertwined. So that's why these units kind of this unit kind of gets brought together. So we frequently explain our motives in the terms of emotions. And this kind of brings me into emotional intelligence. And this is the ability to perceive, imagine, understand emotions and to use the information in decision making. And this, uh, we, we've, we've kind of mentioned this before um, and, and we'll, be, we'll be touching on this again, I am sure. But when you are talking with a group of friends and you want to tell a joke, and this joke might not uh, resonate with some groups versus other. You are using social judgment and emotional intelligence to know how, how to play this uh, or how to tell this joke, so to speak. Um, so uh, boiling down the word emotion, so good definition time for you. A subjective feeling provoked by real or imagined objects or events that have high significance to the individual. So I have a little kind of sum up here that I want to give to you guys. So emotions can push and pull us in different directions. Sometimes emotions function like biological drives. Our feelings, are, uh, our feelings energize us and make us pursue a goal. Which goal we pursue may be determined by our social learning experiences. Uh, and over time, uh, we do things because we think they will make us feel good. And the anticipated emotion that will result from these behaviors become the incentive uh, for our actions. And finally, emotions help us make decisions and communicate what is going on inside of us. As a result, others respond to our emotions and treat us accordingly. So you can kind of see that all the stuff we've been talking about in this unit are very, very intertwined, as I kind of mentioned earlier. So um, just kind of a little interesting study here for you, just something I had posted in my notes and I thought I'd share it with you guys. Angry people who have quick a quick temper are more likely to overestimate their intelligence, suggests a new study of 528 people. This is SciPost.org. So thought it was interesting. So anyhow, um, let's talk emotions. So emotions result from four occurrences. So the first one, you must interpret some stimulus. The second, you have a subjective feeling, such as anger or happiness. The third, you're, uh, you experienced psychological responses, such as, um, I'm sorry, physiological responses, like physical responses, such as an increased heart rate. And fourth, you display an observable behavior, such as smiling or crying. And uh, building off of this, all emotions have then three parts. So as we said, uh, there's four occurrences for the emotions, but there's three parts. There's the physical part, the behavioral part, and the cognitive part. So the physical, the physical part, as, uh, this aspect has to do with how the emotion affects the physical arousal of an individual. Uh, so this level of arousal directs the body how to respond to the experienced emotion. We talked about smiling or crying kind of thing. Um, and moving on to this with behavioral, and um, you're, you'll hear the end of this and understand that this is, I do a lot of this, or at least I think I do, but is the outward expression of the emotions, such as body language, hand gestures, which you can't see that I'm doing, but I'm doing, and the tone of a person's voice, and I'm doing that one a lot. And finally, cognitive, uh, the aspect concerns how we think or about or interpret a situation. This affects our emotions. So the physical, that kind of um, 
that heart rate and so forth, kind of moving the behavioral, that's our hand gestures, our tone of voice, certain body language, and then the cognitive, that is our kind of internal, you know, like how our brain is processing all this. Now, there are tons of emotions, and I know I'm going to miss a lot here, but I'm just going to kind of hit a couple big ones here for you. Sadness guilt, uh, sadness leads to guilt, guilt to depression, shyness to shame, distaste to disgust, timidity to fear, fear to terror, dislike to con uh, contempt to hatred, hostility to anger to rage, boredom to surprise, interest and to enthusiasm to excitement, rhapsody to ecstasy, like to love to passion, uh, contentment to happiness to joy, want to desire, and fear to anger and anger to hate and hate to suffering and suffering leads to the dark side because I have to put a Star Wars reference in here of course all right almost done gang I promise here all right so identifying emotions now we've been talking about different aspects of emotions and probably you can figure out a lot of this but without knowing a person's language you can still tell whether they are amused or infuriated just by looking at that person's face certain basic facial expressions are innate they are part of our biological inheritance and that's pretty amazing that cultures around the world people from different languages and so forth still express certain emotions the same way. Uh, observations of children who are born without sight and hearing um, tend to support this because they can't observe other people um, doing different things that we all kind of take for granted, but they still laugh just like everyone else. Uh, when they're happy, they pout and frown when they are expressing resentment and clench their fists and teeth in anger, even though they've never observed anyone else doing it. So this is very, very innate in us. Um, so by noticing changes in different parts of the face, eyebrows, eyes, and mouth, we've been able to identify 10 different emotional states, according to James A. Russell. And his 10 are joy, excitement, surprise, sadness, anger, disgust, contempt, fear, shame, and guilt. And uh, my kind of finishing up for you guys, I got just a couple left here, uh, is the facial feedback theory. And our experiences of an emotion is affected by the feedback our brain receives from our facial muscles. So we talked about kind of some of these universals, but it sounds like our brain also takes these universals and interprets them their own way. So for instance, if you smile, your brain will be releasing different chemicals and stuff and it will help to make you happy. And this is the facial feedback theory. So, you know, just keep on smiling kind of thing. All right. Uh, kind of winding down here, let's talk about learning an emotion with James Avril. And he believed that many of our everyday emotional reactions are the result of social expectations and consequences. So this is where we are learning um, how to express ourselves and so forth. So he says, we learn to express and experience emotions in the company of other people, and we learn that emotions can serve different social functions. So for instance, parents modify children's emotions by responding angrily to some outbursts, uh, being sympathetic to others, and on occasion by ignoring their children. I know that sounds bad, but by doing this in this way, children are taught either directly or indirectly which emotions are appropriate in certain circumstances. So, um, and I hate this one, and it goes into my next little bit of this, but very much in the United States, uh, we, have the, we have an emotional culture. And let me define emotional culture, and then I'll talk about how it is for the United States, because it goes with this, the last little bit that we went over here, but this is the very end here. But emotional culture, different cultures of the world view certain emotions differently. 
And so this is where it is kind of like a social thing where we are learned different things. And I really hate this about the United States. And, and I do think it's getting better, but I, I still hear people say this. Uh, but in the United States, oh, boys don't show emotion. Boys don't cry um, kind of thing. And, and I say that kind of, kind of negatively because I think that uh, we are socially engineering, socially teaching um, young boys not to show certain emotions or when it was appropriate to show emotions and when it is not kind of thing. Now, there are other examples of this around the world. Japan, uh, are, uh, people in Japan are more likely to mask fear and disgust or distress by presenting a smile instead. The Utku Eskimo, sorry, my pronunciation is terrible, uh, expressing anger is like extremely taboo and can result in social ostracism. So um, just kind of interesting how it is different around the world and how we display emotions. And our last little bit that I'm going to leave you guys with is a little Today I Learned. So Today I Learned, peekaboo is universal to all cultures and developmental psychologists believe it is important to infant development. So I thought that was kind of interesting that we talked about how smiling is universal, laughing is universal. Well, peekaboo is universal. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this, and I will talk with you guys next time. Have a good one.